0: After 30 years as a psychiatrist working with college students in New York, Dr. David Lebo has seen a lot of the ups and downs of the college mental health circuit. Lebo is on the faculty of Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons in addition to being a psychiatrist at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He has a new book out called When College is Not the Best Time of Your Life, a book that looks at the typical things that befall more than just a few college students, acknowledging that for a large number of these students, college is anything but grand. He joins us today. Dr. David Lebo, welcome to Flip Switch.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: So you got a book out called What to Do When College is Not the Best Time of Your Life. Now, right. I've seen Animal House and I've seen Revenge of the Nerds and a bunch of other shows. There's no way that college is not the best time of your life, right?
1: Well, first of all, obviously those movies are comedies and they're spoofs and they're in no way meant to uh, represent what actually happens in college. And... It is true that probably for the majority of students college is a pretty good time of their life. I don't know what time of life would be considered the best time of your life, but many people go to college with that expectation. They're told this by parents who sort of are looking back at college through the hazy golden fog of nostalgia, and it is a time obviously when you don't have the adult responsibilities of a mortgage and a job and a family and that sort of thing. And It is an opportunity to learn from world-renowned experts and live among your peers and so forth. So in theory, it ought to be a pretty good time, and for many people it is. But for a sizable minority and in almost a majority, because depending on how you measure things, it's actually at times a pretty miserable time of life. First of all, the pressures of academic work, which many people struggle with, is certainly at the beginning of college, but even all the way through. They find it overwhelming by comparison to high school. There's the homesickness that comes from living away from home if you go away to school. There's the challenge of making friends and keeping them. There's the issue of romantic relationships, and there are all the other problems that young adults have that are not specific to college.
0: Do you think part of that comes from, you talked about looking back through a haze, do you think part of that is maybe we hype college too much, or there's an unrealistic vision of what college either is or should be?
1: I don't know whether it's really hyped. I think most college students are looking forward to it with a mixture of excitement and a little bit of apprehension, which is completely normal. It really is the very, very beginning of the transition to adulthood, they know that it's going to be challenging in some ways. I think they know this even despite the hype that comes with the pressure of trying to get in and the way it's depicted in the media, which of course is utterly distorted.
0: Now, you've seen tons of college students in your um, practice. Could you give us a typical example, if there is such a thing, of someone who comes into your office and explains that the college experience is not living up to kinda what was promised in the brochure.
1: Right. I think a very typical presentation is the following. It's November, it's maybe the week before the Thanksgiving break, and I get a call not from the student necessarily but from the student's mother who's distressed because their son or daughter has confessed to them that they haven't done any work since the beginning of school Despite their best intentions and hoping to turn over a new leaf, they've actually fallen very far behind academically and they're feeling overwhelmed and really quite depressed and hopeless. And sometimes the mother will say to me, you know, I think my son has ADD. It turns out that this is not a brand new pattern that the child has had difficulty getting all his or her work done during high school, but they're bright and they're charming and they manage to get through high school and into a good college. So then the son or daughter shows up and it very quickly emerges that, yes, there is a depression, but the depression is secondary to the floundering academically, that this is not a person with a history of mood disorders and it's not somebody whose depression is uh, has all of the uh, signs and symptoms of a major depression occasionally they can but very often it's entirely related to this feeling of having failed themselves and disappointed their parents and being hopelessly behind so what we end up doing in short order is focusing on how they're going to try to get themselves back on track academically and as we do that the depression often improves now Listen, there are clearly people who come with real depression, bipolar disorder, pre-existing conditions, people who were just very, very lonely at school. But the academic presentation, I would say, in my experience, is the most common. And the national studies that are done of the issues that college students find most overwhelming list academic stress as the most important stressor, even ahead of financial worries, or uh, interpersonal problems. So this is a typical presentation for me.
0: You've been doing this for quite a while. Um, Do you see this trend increasing or does it remain constant throughout the time you've been working with college students?
1: Well it's very interesting because after I I, uh, published my book I was invited to blog on Psychology Today and the Huffington Post And I actually talked about this problem, and I got a lot of responses from people who were now in their 50s and 60s who remember exactly the same problems being present then. I don't know what the statistics are because the, you know, so I can't compare whether it was statistically as prevalent then as it is today, but it certainly was present then. And I know lots of people who had miserable experiences in the 70s going to college. In my thirty years of practicing psychiatry, I don't know that whether I can detect a real change. This has been a long standing problem. The only difference may be the following that there's such intense pressure, particularly in uh, large cities, to get into quote unquote elite schools, you know name brand schools that the kids are pushed and pushed by their parents and they're assisted by tutors and the teachers are very involved. And when they get to college, the lack of structure is very, very overwhelming. Maybe that's a difference. Maybe in the past, parents and teachers and tutors were not involved during high school, so the kids learn to cope a little bit earlier or not cope on their own.
0: So let's um, so let's say that somebody is having... Uh, these issues, um, one of the number of ones you talk about in your book, Uh, what is one of the first things they can do to go about getting help when everything's kind of coming apart at the seams?
1: Well, the problem is academic. They should take advantage of whatever academic resources are available on the campus. Almost every school now has a center that helps people with uh, writing assignments. Most schools will provide tutors who are usually upperclassmen majoring in a particular subject who will help you to organize and learn the particular subject you're struggling with. There are often group seminars and so forth on time management. And if you're really, really floundering, of course, uh, or actually even if you're not yet doing that badly, you should go and speak to the professor and talk to him about how to get back on track. And rather than burying your head in the sand and hoping it will go away, and then uh, getting to the point where you have to go and ask for extensions and so forth, which uh, professors will grant but aren't crazy about, particularly if you've blown them off up until then, If the problem is psychological, I think the best place to start is with the college students feel a lot of shame about this because they feel that everybody else is sailing along smoothly and only they are having problems. And because they're embarrassed that they're not living up to their potential and maybe they're not living up to it because they've been lazy or because they've been procrastinating, they resist getting help because they Feel like the person is just going to chastise them for not working harder or they're going to be disappointed with them or whatever. And that's the big problem. The big problem is not that there are no resources. The big problem is that college students feel ashamed of their problems and don't get help. One of the things I try to illustrate in the book is that these problems are very common, that they can be treated. That most people who get help with them actually do much better. And in fact, dealing with problems is part of what makes people grow up. It's what makes them adult. Everybody has problems, so you you know the the issue is not whether or not you have problems. Everybody has problems. The issue is whether or not you learn adult ways of coping with them. And this is the place to begin.
0: We'll be back with more of our interview with Dr. David Lebo in just a moment. Stay tuned.
2: sure with your Tech Corner Tech Tip of the Week. Active Minds is a nonprofit that develops and supports student run mental health awareness, education, and advocacy chapters on college campuses across the country. In less than five years, Active Minds has grown from a single campus chapter to a nonprofit organization on over 100 campuses nationwide and in Canada. To learn more about chapters in your area, open your browser and type in www.activemindsoncampus.org and click the chapters link in the upper right-hand corner of the page. If you're interested in joining their team, internships are also available. To find out more, click the internship link, which can be found on their homepage in the right-hand column. On the site, you'll also find great information on coping, connecting, and mental health gear towards teens and young adults. This has been Shira with your Tech Corner Tech Tip of the Week. See you next week!
3: On behalf of the Child and Adolescent Bipolar Foundation, I'm Allie Sheedy from The Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire, and Short Circuit. When CABF asked me to record this, I jumped at the chance to talk to you about stigma. It's everywhere, and the looks you get and phone calls you don't when you're too manic or depressed to be in school. That's stigma, plain and simple. It's a form of discrimination. In my film Breakfast Club, I'm proud of the way we showed stigma for the ugly thing it is. Having a mood disorder isn't a choice, and peers need to learn that. So dare to be open, be who you are, and be understood. Tell people what it's like not to be supported when you're down, and help friends get a clue about you. Average is overrated. Your disorder gives you creative powers and heightened sensitivities that rock. Find the art in you because you can. You're going to be okay, more than okay please visit the Child and Adolescent Bipolar Foundation online at bpkids.org.
0: Let's get back into more of our interview with Dr. David Lebo, author of When College is Not the Best Time of Your Life. I'd like to uh, read something from your book uh, that I think was pretty interesting. Uh, uh, You write uh, about the banality of modern culture in general and and how it can kind of set people up to value things that uh, lead them sort of down the wrong path. Um, Right. For instance, in one section, you you write, um, we have made self-inflicted misery chic, watching your own blood ooze from a cut you yourself made, burning your thigh with a cigarette, vomiting in a restaurant bathroom after a meal, letting yourself look like a derelict. All the sad and sordid acts associated with the, the, quote, dark side are in reality little more than pop culture cliches. They equate misery with creativity, self-inflicted pain with martyrdom, and self-indulgence with nobility. Their sources are the literature of tragedy at its least imaginative. Vampire cults, drug-martyred musicians and actors, mental asylum memoirs, and too-rich-for-their-own-good celebrity profiles. They borrow from the language of the street but have no meaning beyond the self. Sadly, they are utterly derivative and unoriginal. But, They don't seem that way when you're young. They seem romantic. They feed upon the desire to make your life extraordinary, to be greater than it currently is. You want your life to be filled with passion and creativity. You want your pain to have meaning, something grander than the -the run-of-the-mill angst of the typical college student. You want your pain to be cinematic. But by dramatizing your angst and your uniqueness in the conventional way, by inflicting injury on yourself, you're not alleviating it, you're diminishing it. By hyping it, you're saying that your pain is too trivial to be taken seriously on its own merits. You're saying it can't be spoken about in a reasonable way to a sympathetic listener. It has to be performed on a stark stage for an imaginary audience. You're paying a big price for the banality of our films and television. Those are some intense words.
1: Yeah, first of all, let me just say that... When people are cutting themselves or burning themselves or vomiting in a bathroom or abusing drugs and all of that, these are very serious problems. I don't mean to suggest that they're trivial or that people are doing it in some show offy way. They reflect real pain and real issues. So I don't want this to sound like I'm trivializing them. What I want to do is remove a little of the glamour from them and to dignify the simple act of talking to somebody else about real problems and getting help for them, as opposed to feeling that they need to be acted out. Now, the reason I refer to the banality of the culture is that a lot of these things, cutting, burning, and so forth, are not things that students would come up with on their own. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily think to cut yourself or to burn yourself uh, on your own you hear about this from other people or you read about it or you see it in the uh, on TV and it gives you the idea that wow this is a way of coping with some emotional distress if I'm feeling very numb if I'm feeling very distressed I can do this and maybe it gives me some relief maybe it may, it gives me a different feeling or it replaces the feeling of numbness of course it's not that there's no underlying issue to be dealt with of course there is and I, and and it would be it would be heartless to say otherwise the method by which it's being dealt with though is something that you picked up almost like a, a contagion from the culture and it is banal and it is relatively uncreative and we all want to be special and you know, sometimes people who have emotional distress are particularly sensitive and creative people, not always, but sometimes they are. And it's understandable that you would want to have an extraordinary life. And I think you're entitled to that desire. But I think if you're having problems or you're feeling like you're not measuring up or whatever, this is not the most creative way of dealing with it. Unfortunately, the most creative dealing with it doesn't sound that creative. It has to do with talking to people who really have dealt with these problems and can help you come up with better solutions.
0: One thing we've heard over and over again from kind of experts and in the media is, if you're, for teens and young adults, is if you're having you know, issues, you should confide in someone, especially, if possible, an adult. Yet, like we've ton- talked to tons of teens and young adults, and the one thing that is consistent among all of them is that they are all petrified of looking weak, Uh, In front of each other, but also to just anybody in general, they're afraid of burdening their friends and family or just increasing problems by kind of giving more control over to somebody in light of an already bad situation. Um, What can be done in that situation to kind of get people to just take the leap and try to get help?
1: Well, this is the point that I was making earlier about shame. First of all, the problem that young people have, and it doesn't necessarily go away when you're an adult, is that you really don't know what normal is. So you assume that if you're having a problem, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're unhappy with the way you look, you feel you're overweight, you feel that you're not as bright or popular or attractive or cool as your peers, you imagine that you're the only one having that experience. Or if you're not the only one, that the people who are having these feelings are the weaklings, you know, the losers. So you don't, even, you don't even count them in the tally of people having it. The reality is that these feelings are very close to universal. Almost every teenager or young adult has feelings like this at one time or another and to one degree or another. So one thing is, If you're having those feelings, it's normal. You should not feel stigmatized by it. You should not feel that you are uniquely weak or whatever. That's just a fact. It's not a fact that you could know because people, as you say, don't want to talk to each other about these things because they feel it'll make them even more disadvantaged compared to their peers. There are a small number of people who will talk about this with their peers, and then they can form a little circle of misery in contradistinction to a popular group or to some other group. And that's not healthy either. You don't want to make this like your red badge of courage, like this is your calling card, I'm miserable. But you do need to know that that kind of feeling is normal. And I think that the issue is, Who can you talk to about these things who can actually help and who won't judge and who will have seen this enough to understand that this is normal and will help you to put it into perspective and give you ways of coping with it? And obviously, the best people for that probably are therapists. Now, in theory, the best people ought to be your parents because your parents have life experience. They love you. They want the best for you and so on. I know, though, that realistically, you're not going to necessarily talk to your parents about these things. It would be a good idea if you did, if your parents are the kind of people you can talk to, but certainly uh, a therapist is not going to judge, is going to have had experience with this, and is going to be able to help you to deal with these problems. So I think that's the answer, but you have to overcome your own sense of being a failure or a loser or a weak just because you have problems. You're going to have problems your whole life, and everybody does.
0: Uh, Have you found in in your practice, uh, are there any um, issues with college students specifically having issues uh, that tend to be gender specific? And if so, why or why not?
1: Well, one gender specific is the obsession with thinness. It's almost like we live in a tyranny where thinness equals beauty. And it puts enormous pressure on girls and young women to be thin. And I think that a tragedy. The reality is that adolescent girls and young adults are not supposed to be thin. They're supposed to be normal and healthy and to have the figure and, and have some uh, body fat and so forth. And I think that that's a gender-specific thing. And I don't know what the cure for that is because there are some people who are utterly overwhelmed by it. There are people who are relatively unaffected by it. And then there's the vast middle who are very aware of it and feel a constant pressure to maintain a certain weight and constantly dieting or adjusting their weight or whatever. And I just think it's an unfortunate way to live, but there's nothing we can do about it. It's pervasive in the culture.
0: Um, In the the past decade or so, we've seen a slight upswing in accommodations made for mental health issues on campuses across the nation. And with that, along with that, people with more serious mental health issues, kind of attending colleges. Um, For our purposes, people with mood disorders that are more uh, genetic-based, like bipolar disorder and whatnot, um, are there special problems that college life presents to people with more specific kind of genetic, biosocial-based disorders, like uh, bipolar disorder or severe depression?
1: Well, of course those disorders have to be treated no matter where you are. You could be living at home with your parents and they still have to be treated. They're not going to you know, they're not going to uh, go away spontaneously. If you go to college and let's say you're on lithium or you're on lamictal for bipolar disorder, obviously you have to maintain the same careful surveillance of your medication that you did when you were at home, and you have to be scrupulous in doing so. There are a couple of additional risks that have to do with college. One of them is the sleep-wake cycle, because college students notoriously stay up late and sleep late. Uh, There's often noise in the dorm and uh, activity and so on, so it's very important to try to have a disciplined sleep-wake cycle as best you can, and, and I know it's not easy. Sometimes what you may need to do is get a single room so that you, your roommate's not going to keep you up. The other thing, of course, is alcohol and drugs, which most college students dabble with, and people with bipolar disorder, who are especially who are on medication, tend not to do as well with those things. It's not like you can never have a drink or you could never smoke pot. Most people manage to do it a little bit, even if they're on these mood-stabilizing medications, but you're at increased risk of destabilizing yourself by doing that. And also people, when they're depressed or even a little hypomanic, tend to really enjoy drinking and uh, or, they, or it makes them feel better or it helps to control the high, and so there is a danger of going overboard with that. But otherwise, I see no reason why somebody with a mood disorder can't do perfectly well in college and thrive. And most of the patients I have who have mood disorders do beautifully in college.
0: Final question. One of the things that often happens, uh, maybe not all the time, but quite a bit, is that people get into one situation or another so that by the time they end up in counseling or finally getting help, they don't have one disorder. They have six because yeah. it started with bad grades and then that led to drinking which led to break up with relationships um and when that happens when everything is falling apart how does one even begin to know where to start I mean what do I stop drinking first do I get help what what do I do
1: well first of all even though all of these problems have built on each other, it's not like they can't all be tackled at the same time. So for example, you're depressed and you're drinking too much. Well, you can attend an AA meeting on campus and, and most campuses have alcohol groups of students and professors and, uh, and they're incredibly inspirational and helpful. So you're dealing with the drinking because certainly you're not going to uh, help your mood disorder or your grades if you continue to drink. So that's you, you can do that along with being a psychiatrist or a psychologist to deal with the, uh, the mood disorder. And you can also be uh, getting help with your academic problems. You very often have to tackle these things at the same time. It does happen, though, obviously, that people can paint themselves into a corner that they can't get out of. And then you can usually get a medical leave of absence or you can even get a voluntary leave of absence, not a medical leave of absence. Usually you can only take one of those during your college career, whereas a medical leave you can do more than once. What the best thing to do is to let your parents know that you're doing this and meet with your dean, the dean for your class or the dean of uh, students and talk about this and arrange to get a leave of absence or if you need to get extensions, the the, uh, dean will help you to talk to your professors. And sometimes taking a leave of absence and kind of getting your act together without the pressure of schoolwork is easier. And as you know, when the when U.S. News and World Report looks at graduation rates, they don't do four years. They do five years or six years. Many, many students take time off, and if you need to do that, it's, it's a good idea. It's, it's, and, and in fact, uh, uh, most people, when they come back, do much better.
0: The book is What to Do When College is Not the Best Time of Your Life. Dr. David Lebo, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.